This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. These are Our Voices, a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. Jason St. Julian for the United States. Those few words carry so much weight for today's guest. Jason St. Julian is an assistant United States attorney in the criminal division of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Denver, Colorado. A former school teacher, minor league baseball player, and federal court clerk with a long-standing commitment to public service. Jason was already a rising star on the Denver legal landscape when he penned a powerful testament of his experience as a black man in today's society for the Denver Post in June of 2020. That article struck a chord across the state and across the country. Jason sat down with fellow bar leaders Linda Moss and Mallory Revel to talk about the important people and events that have shaped his path and informed his philosophy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast today. We're excited to have you here. I'm Mallory Revel, criminal defense attorney at Foster Graham, Milstein, and Kalisher. With me is my co-host, Linda Moss, a family law attorney with Coombe, Curry, Rich, and Jarvis. Today, we're with Jason St. Julian, and we are so excited to hear a little bit about his story. So excited. Um, meet with him today. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you both. So I can't help but notice your cufflinks. Yes. Is that Star Wars I see? That is Star Wars. So just to be very clear, that like I came here with my Star Wars cufflinks, so that means I came here for business. <laughs> okay. So any, any, business. Yeah, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Yes. Um, listening to the soundtracks, like that's what brought me to the symphony. Mm. I usually have season tickets to the symphony everywhere oh my I God, go. Yes. And it's Star Wars that brought me Ugh. to that. And so anytime I have a big hearing or a trial, like I, the, the Star Wars cufflinks come out. And so they are here right now. I totally mean business. Uh, the force is with me. What's on them? <laughs> I, can't, I can't see them that well. It, it, it just has the Star Wars logo. Oh, okay. And, and like, so, so like, is it Boba yeah. Fett on here? No, no, no. It's, it's, oh, it's, I hope it's Baby Yoda. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's just the word, the, the word Star Wars. Awesome. So baseball players are kind of famous for being superstitious. I guess all mm -hmm. athletes are, but my mm -hmm. experience, baseball players are the yep. most. Are these lucky cufflinks then for big trials? Uh, are they lucky? No, it's just, you know, I, they're not lucky. I just wear them because I like them. You know, actually my good friend, so Michelle West, we went to law school together um, I officiated her wedding, and as a gift, she gave me these cuffs. So, Michelle, I'm giving you a shout out. Uh, and I mean, the, like, she knows me to a T. And when she, when I saw these in the case, I was like, "Did she just give me Star Wars cufflinks?" <laughs> yeah. I'm wearing these all the time. <laughs> I have to ask. I have to ask. Mm -hmm. Best Star Wars movie. Ooh, ooh. Okay, oh, so Mallory. it's it's gonna be one of the originals. Ooh. Right, say like episode three. <laughs> no, absolutely not. So okay, it's it's either um, episode four, A New Hope, or episode six, Return of the Jedi. I am gonna go with uh, 
dum, give me like five seconds. Dum, 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 dum. Play the I'm music go, in your head. Oh, I, I totally am. <laughs> it was throne room and then like the end at the for the Ewoks. And Return, of the, Return of the Jedi. Good pick. Return of the Jedi. <laughs> Our whole recording crew speaking, is so excited. <laughs> speaking of the importance of music, yes. before we got started, you sat down and played the most beautiful song on piano. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your piano playing abilities, which are clearly impressive. Well, let me go on record and say I cannot read piano music. That may be <laughs> one of the two or three songs I can know. <laughs> I just didn't tell that to you before I sat down. So my, my family is a musical family. Um, we had a piano in, in our in our house. Um, and so I was able to listen to my mom and my brother play. And I did take piano lessons for a while and then I stopped. And so I just kind of listened to them and watched them. And I would have them teach me certain chords for certain songs. And the song I played was a gospel song from church. And then once I learned those chords, I just listened, okay, well, what else goes with that? How can I just go off into other areas? And when you only know two or three songs and you practice those all the time, you kind of get kind of facile with figuring out where to go and, and how to go there. So. Well, it was very beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's the, it's the cufflinks. <laughs> it's the cufflinks. The Star Wars cufflinks make all the difference. <laughs> it's the cufflinks. We're going to go through a little bit of a structure of who were you. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about kind of your background growing up. Who are you now? We'll talk about personally, professionally where you are. And where do you want to go next? So jumping right in, tell us about growing up. Sure. So I'm originally from St. Martinville, Louisiana. It's a small town about, let's say, south-southeast of Lafayette, Louisiana. Uh, my dad was a petroleum engineer for at least 30 years, so we moved back and forth between Louisiana and Texas. And I actually graduated high school in Louisiana. And then after I graduated high school, I pretty much moved every two years of my life. So I went two years to junior college in, at Frank Phillips Junior College in Borger, Texas, and if any one of you raise your hands and says, you know where Borger is or you've heard it, then I'll get you some more M&Ms. <laughs> so uh, I went there for two years. I played baseball, transferred to North Carolina State in Raleigh for two years. I played there. I didn't get drafted, so I signed an independent contract with the Kalamazoo Kings. I played for the Kalamazoo Kings in Michigan for approximately maybe two, two and a half months. We ended up winning the whole league. My first professional hit ever was a home run. Wow. Of course. Yeah. Derek Jeter's yeah. hometown. Yeah. You can't and then, play bad baseball in Derek Jeter's exactly. hometown. And then after the home run, everything just kind of went downhill from there. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, and so I went back for spring training the next year. I got cut the day before spring training. Okay. So then I went back to Texas. I taught for two years in Pearland, Texas. I taught seventh grade Texas history and reading. And I coached football and basketball. I then moved to Baton Rouge in Louisiana. I went to law school for three years at LSU. I clerked for Judge Lemon in the Eastern District of Louisiana, which is New Orleans, for a year after that. Moved up to Denver, and I thought I'd be here for a year. And I clerked for, at that time, Chief Judge Daniel here in the District of Colorado. And lo and behold, eight years later, I am still here, and I have been uh, with the U.S. Attorney's Office for approximately six years. Wow. Eight years later. Yeah, really yeah, the, 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 the math didn't necessarily work out on my end. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So let's go back to your time in North Carolina. Sure. Um, talk to us about North Carolina State and mm-hmm. baseball opportunities there. Yeah, sure. So when when I walked in, well, let me back up and just tell you a, a story about how I believe I got there. So uh, at Frank Phillips Junior College, I sent out at least 50 to 100 letters to different colleges saying, look, here are my stats. I played in the all-star game last year. I believe I could provide leadership to your team. I have what it takes to be a player uh, on your team. And one night I went through all the letters and I had what's called the college blue book. You guys know what that is? Mm -hmm. So it gives you stats about all the colleges. And I was reviewing all the colleges. And for my letter to NC State, I didn't put head coach Elliot Avant. I just put Elliot Avant. And that was the only letter out of that whole stack that I didn't put head coach. And so something said, Jason, do it right. And so before I rewrote anything, I went back to the college blue book and I did a little bit more research on NC State, you know, population, the degrees offered, so on and so forth. And so I said, okay. So I ripped up the envelope, put the new letter in and wrote out head coach Elliot Avent sent him off. And maybe a week or two weeks later at practice, our head coach said, Hey, um, Jules, that was my nickname. He said, Hey, Jules, what do you think about NC state? And he had this little grin on his face. (laughs) And I said, coach, don't play with me. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, well, they actually called about you. You know, would you like to go there? I said, look, stop. This is not the time for jokes. Like don't play with me. And he said, no, really they called. So I go back to my dorm after practice and I have three missed calls uh, that I don't know the area code for. Turns out it was the recruiting coordinator. And he said, hey, I can't remember his name and we can do this. We can get you signed whenever you're ready. And lo and behold, I signed my letter of intent and going coming from junior college, walking to NC State in the ACC, which Mm -hmm. I believe was the, the best baseball conference in the nation at that time. And walking on the campus, walking onto the field, it was like, (laughs) we get our own equipment. The the field is perfectly groomed. And it's like, wow, I I never imagined I'd ever be here. And it was was surreal. Mm -hmm. What position did you play? I played left field and right field and first base. Oh, (laughs) was first base like (laughs) tertiary? (laughs) Yeah, I'd come in sometimes late in the game and play first base. Oh. What is your favorite story from baseball days? Oh, boy, the favorite story in baseball days. So my junior year, we're playing Florida State. It's Friday night. It's a packed stadium. We have our All-American pitcher um, starting. It's there's a I'm going to guess eight or nine thousand people there. They're all yelling. So they have these signs up with my number and they're call everybody's calling me Julie. So when I walk up to the plate, say Julie, Julie. <laughs> and I remember when I'm on deck, I always have this routine and I don't break the routine. You know, I'm getting ready. I'm watching the pitcher. I'm trying to see where his slot is. I'm, I'm, you know, imagining I'm up to bat and looking at the pitches, the location. And I hear them yelling, Julie, Julie. And I remember that one time I just put my bat on the ground leaned put my elbow on it leaned up against the bat and I just didn't do my routine and it was the most calm I've ever felt and the irony for me was like wait a minute wait a minute what what am I doing I I gotta be in my routine Mm -hmm. I was like you're good like you're calm and I never felt that calm before especially at an away game 
with a ruckus crowd on a Friday night. Ended up getting a base hit. We scored a run. And it was just, I'll never forget that moment. I don't know what I did to, to bring that on. <laughs> I just felt it. And I just always remember like, wow. I'm pretty, I'm pretty calm right now. You and you still Nirvana. haven't been able, yeah, you still haven't been able to identify exactly no, what it I, was. I have no clue what it was. Because if you could, I mean, we could use some of that in 2020. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Well, you you have okay. <laughs> Lawyers. You gotta give me like you gotta Nirvana. give me like a week to go back to that moment and figure it out. Maybe maybe some M and M's could help me figure that out. For anyone who who's curious about the M and M's, Mallory and I both have piles and piles of M and M's sitting in front of us it's right now. It's been a long afternoon. We've got to have some sugar. Yeah, we really needed some M&Ms. So skipping ahead to law school. Tell us about your law school experience at LSU. Sure. So um, I chose LSU because I had a, you know, I had a social network there. I had a support group. My cousin, cousins lived there. I was familiar with it. And, you know, I, I left a career in teaching, even though I only taught for two years to go to law school and it was, you know, getting back to school and then like going to law school, which was this whole new universe. I wasn't, I had no clue about, uh, I mean, talk about an acclimation period and just jumping in. Mm -hmm. And it, it was interesting. Um, there, I mean, there were totally days I didn't want to do it. I didn't think I was smart enough. You know, why does, why does it take me, you know, 20 times to read this one paragraph to figure it out. And it mm-hmm. seems like everybody else is getting mm-hmm. it on the first, on the first try. Yeah. And um, it was when I was a 1L, my cousin Ryan St. Julian was a freshman there playing football. And so the respite from all of this reading and, you know, these hypotheticals was on Saturdays. My extended family was always on campus, you know, tailgating for home games and so I could go see them and hang out. And it was this great release that, hey, family is here. I get to go see a family member play. So it was just this, this great release on the weekends. And then I go right back to it on Monday going, well, what have I stepped into? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what great self-care, though. Yes, yes. It, it was, you know, my, so my aunt and uncle, especially my Annie Lane, you know, every time I'd go to the tailgate, she would always feed me. Yes. <laughs> Because yes. I'd walk up and my eyes would be huge. I was like, uh, do y'all have any food? <laughs> <laughs> Feed the poor law student, please. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And my, my cousin Kristen, her and her husband Chad, sometimes I'd just pull up to their apartment. They'd walk outside with Tupperware full of leftovers for food. And she was wow. like, Jay, just take it. We know you don't have time. And so I had such a group of, of people taking care of me. Yeah. And I'm, I'm forever indebted to them. Did you ever get to a point in your law school career where you stopped feeling that sense of, you know, everyone else understands this and I don't? No. I mean, it, it was always in, in some area. And, you know, that, that tracks on a story that I'll share later. Um, but there was always just some area like, why? I mean, I lived in this space of comparison. Mm-hmm. Like, my, in order for me, you know, it was as if my self-worth had to be validated or, or, or was given by others not myself Mm -hmm. and that well why why did they finish this paper quicker than me and why did they get this grade and why did they you know get this place in this specific tournament Mm -hmm. well there must be something wrong with me Mm -hmm. because I can't do it like that Mm. 
Let's just jump into that story right now. Tell us oh, more about that. Sure. Look, for 33 years of my life, I walked around like I wasn't good enough. And I was not good enough because I'm black. And that stems from all of my experiences uh, growing up. You know, I just had it in my head that that's how life is, that I am a second class citizen. I will always be a second class citizen. I'm not good enough for anything. There's something inherently wrong with my DNA because of the color of my skin, because all of these things aren't happening to Johnny Blue Eyes down the street. Mm -hmm. So there must be something wrong with me based on the color of my skin. And I'm not good enough for this job. And I'm not good enough for that salary. And for sure, I'm not good enough to be in a relationship with a beautiful woman. And so like, that's just how I walked around in life. And you know, the, <laughs> I think back now just to tell you like how prominent it was when I first started clerking with Judge Lemon in New Orleans, the first day, one of our classmates who finished very high the, uh, in our class, if not the top of our class, he was clerking for a judge in the same building. And so I reached out to him. Hey, just want to come tell you hello. It's my first day. So I go to that courtroom and the whole time, like the only conversation in my head is, look at this building. This is like palatial. There's 10, you know, 15 foot oak doors and all of this stuff. And Jason, you have no business being here. Like you have absolutely no business being here. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. Man, you're going to mess this up. And when you do mess this up, everyone's going to figure out that you're a fraud. Like you will mm -hmm. be figured out. And then how am I going to deal with this? Mm -hmm. And it was so right in front of my face. I walk up to him. Uh, his name was Josh. And I was so flustered, I started stuttering. I couldn't really speak. And I don't stutter. And in that moment, I, it, I don't even, I don't even know what he said because I was so in my own head and I can, you know, I can smile now when I look back on it. But when I left chambers and left speaking to Josh, I mean, I had this moment where I just thought, you know, like what, what is going on? Like what, what is this? Like this, like this is what life is about. And so you know, that and that was the same in law school, you know, that when I walk into this building, like I'm not supposed to be here. So I better find a way to pretend like I know what I'm doing, because if anybody figures me out, I mean, I already think I'm not good enough. Now, if you really know I'm not good enough, I can't even pretend that. Right. And I think it's interesting that you said when I messed this up, not if I messed. This oh, yeah. Up. Like when yeah. it, it was totally not if it was when. Mm hmm. How do you get past that? Well, look, the I got past that out of my participation um, in a personal growth and development training program called the Landmark Forum. That's how I got past it. And that's how I got clear that that stuff that I had in my head was just a story. And I got responsible and said, I'm the one that created that story. Like, no one that like... You two aren't walking around in life saying, hey, there goes Jason. He's not good enough. He's not smart enough. He can't do X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. Like that story just lived in my own head. When in actuality, you know, I've, I've, I was late to my own party. Mm -hmm. You know, when I share that story with my friends and family, they're like, well, wait a minute, what? 
wait, wait, you're, you're serious? I'm like, trust me, I'm not making this yeah. up. And so, you know, look, I got over that because I got clear that that's just a story. And if I created that story, I can create an empowering story. And so now, you know, if and when that does come up, it's okay. I can set that aside and, you know, like, no, look, I'm a powerful human being and I can make an impact and difference in the world. And that's who I am. And it's not a joke. You just mentioned a program. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So the, the Landmark Forum and Landmark Worldwide, uh, it's Personal Growth Training and Development Program. And the Landmark Forum is the first course that you can take. It's a three-day, all-day course and, and one evening. And it's all about altering what's possible in people's lives. And trust me, I altered what's possible <laughs> in my life. You know, I left that, uh, I left on the, the Sunday of my course, and I remember the day. It was Sunday, September the 3rd of 2014. And when I left the course that evening, it was as though I saw the world and myself for the first time ever. And my world is a bigger place since that. Like who I am right now in front of you two, that's not possible without my, without my participation in the program. Mm, and you're also a Cobalt graduate, right? I am, yes. You're 2017? 2017. Right, I was 2018, so Ooh, I just okay, missed you. Yeah. I got rejected in 2017. Uh, I did apply. That, that, you didn't I get did rejected. Apply. They just said, look, you know, you're so, you're so dope. We're going to put you on the next one. <laughs> okay? There was no rejection there. There is never rejection in Cobalt. No, that is not. right. It's that's not. right. What was your Cobalt experience like? You know, just to be able to be around, you know, movers and shakers in the profession that I necessarily wouldn't be around because, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty into criminal all, all day, every day. That's mm -hmm. what I do. And so I was exposed to people and experiences that I, I, I would not have gotten had I not been in the program. And one of the, the, the biggest things I got from, from Cobalt, there was, uh, I don't know if, if he was Army or Air Force, but there was an individual who spoke with us and he, you know, he he told us he was in charge of however many number of troops overseas. And when he went to his new deployment, his commanding officer said, hey, look, you know, you can be a firefighter and you'd probably be good. And he was like, well, what do you mean? He was like, there are going to be tons of fires. And if you just put out the fires, that'll be fine. And he said, but look, you know, keep the main thing, the main thing. And keep the mission, the, the, you know, m be mission focused. And at that point in time, I was president of the Sam Carey Bar Association. Mm. And, you know, as much as I would love to say I could balance everything and I had this wonderful work-life balance, I didn't. <laughs> and so hearing that, you know, got me to a place where, okay, look, I can focus on so many things. What's the main mission with work? What's the main mission with the Sam Carey Bar? And focus on that. And how can we make the biggest amount of impact? And how can we do it now? And that's what I was able to focus on. I love COBOL. I mean, it's, it's transformative. It really it is. is. So I'm glad that you had a good experience too. Um, tell me about Judge Daniel. Um, sure. I know that you have some powerful experiences um, involving Judge Daniel. So if you could share that. Sure. So I met Judge Daniel originally over the phone. I was supposed to clerk for Chief Judge Tyson in the middle district of Louisiana, which is in Baton Rouge. I had interned him when, with him when I was a 2L at LSU he offered me the position to clerk for him after I graduated. I was all set to go. And so a week before the Texas bar, he passes away. Mm. And so I'm already in my head and going down these rabbit holes because I've got a bar exam in one week. 
And then I find out my friend and my mentor and my boss passed away. So, the, you know, do I have a job or do I not have a job? Do I ask people about this? Well, I need to focus on the bar exam and how do I handle all this? And so it's just this wonderful storm of all of this stuff. And so after I take the bar, I figured, okay, well, I need to start contacting judges and figure out, like, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. So I start contacting judges all across the United States. I get in touch with Judge Daniel through, like, a third, fourth-degree connection. My trial ad coach, Jude Bork, reached out to Judge Alfred Harrell here, who Judge Alfred Harrell reached out to Judge Daniel. I talked to Judge Daniel. He actually... We actually have a phone call when he's taking a break during trial. <laughs> I'm like, which is Sir. remarkable in yeah. and of itself. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, uh, Judge, you don't have to do this. And mm-hmm. he said, No, I, I knew, I knew Judge Tyson. He's a good friend. You know, let's let's talk soon. I then had a, uh, I began clerking for Judge Lemon in New Orleans. Judge Daniel came down for a probation conference uh, in the during uh, December. He at, uh, he said, Hey, can we have breakfast? So I meet him at his hotel. Uh, I meet him for the first time in person. Within 30 seconds, it's as though, like, I'm talking to my uncle. You'd never know he was the chief federal judge. You'd never know he was the first black federal judge in Colorado. And we have a great breakfast, a great time. He kind of says something about, hey, you ever been to Denver? Would you want to go to Denver? I didn't want to be presumptuous because I didn't know if (laughs) he was hinting at something. I was like, Do you want me to come here? Yeah. I mean, I said I've been to Trinidad before. <laughs> Which is the same as Denver. Totally, it's totally. It's just like Denver. It is. It's, it's, it's identical. I've been to Trinidad because when I played Juco baseball at Frank Phillips and Borger, we traveled to Trinidad. And so anyway, you know, he said, hey, let's go to the courthouse. Introduce me to some of the judges because he knew them from baby judge school. Mm. So we do all that and I'm leading him out and I stopped him at the security gate. And I said, you know, judge... You know, man to man, I just want to tell you something. You didn't, you didn't have to have breakfast with me. Like, you're here on work business. You didn't have to take a call from me during a trial. And I just want you to know that I will never forget your patience with me, your time with me. I'll just never forget that. I just really want you to know that. And I stuck out my hand to shake his hand, and he pushed it out the way, and he gave me a hug. And he said, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you for not giving up. And I'm so proud of you for fighting. And I just, I, like, I want you to know how proud I am of you. And that told me everything I need to know about him. And several months later, he offers me the position. I take it, I move up here thinking I'll be here for one year. And like I told you both <laughs> before, it's now eight years. And, you know, really, my world is such a bigger place since I've been here in Denver the experiences that I've had, the people I've met. Um, and, you know, I, I'm forever indebted to Jude Bork. I'm forever indebted to Judge uh, Al Harrell. And I'm forever indebted to Judge Daniel. Like, those three people brought me here. And, I mean, my world is just a bigger place since I've been here. So moving into the now, tell mm-hmm. us about being a federal prosecutor. Sure. So I've been a federal prosecutor for about six years. And the first thing I always say is that, you know, every time that we make an appearance, you know, the first thing or the first thing a judge says, you know, I'll take appearances. And it started from my first day on the job in magistrate court in front of Judge Watanabe. And 
today uh, in front of a hearing with Judge Arguello that when I say Jason St. Julian for the United States, it's like my heart skips a beat mm. because, you know, I'm not just representing peop- uh, citizens in Denver County. I'm not representing citizens of, of Denver. I'm not representing just citizens of Colorado. Like I'm representing the United States citizens. And coming from this place that I had the story that I'm not good enough, no way I could ever make a difference. I mean, it's different now in COVID. Before, before COVID, I'm in court every day, mm-hmm. and I'm literally representing the citizens of the United States. And it's, it's the most humbling thing. It's, um, you know, anytime I may want to get in my head and, you know, think I'm above what's going on. It's just, you know, like, no, you represent the citizens of the United States and, and what a privilege. What's your favorite part of your job? Other than saying that you represent the United <laughs> States, which is pretty special. When I first said that, the words like barely came out because my heart was about to <laughs> jump out of my chest. It's like when you're a new lawyer and you try yeah. to put your bar number yeah. on the record and you're like, like oh, oh my God, oh, I know. Oh, the first what? time I entered an appearance, <laughs> it was while I was in a clinic and I came out of the courtroom and my clinic professor looked at me and went, what what happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know. I forgot all of it. Like, uh... I forgot the words. Yeah. So the, the the other best part is that I like I know I have a hand in protecting people that will never know me, mm-hmm. and you know so I don't necessarily have clients, <clears throat> and so I'm, I mean tonight I may go to the grocery store, and I'll just randomly see someone, and I know that look my job is prote- is to protect that person, and they again they may never they may never meet me they may never know me. And like when I lay my head down to sleep, it's like, look, I know that I have my hand on the pulse of something so much greater than myself that I get the privilege of protecting them. And that, I mean, it's surreal to me. Is there a specific unit that you're in, a type of crimes sure. you specialize in? So I'm in the criminal division in violent crime and immigration enforcement. And I do very little immigration. Uh, I specifically focus in violent crime. I would love to have you talk about your Denver Post article. Um, you published a, an article with the Denver Post recently. Can you tell us a bit about it? Oh, I can tell you a whole lot about it. <laughs> tell us everything about <laughs> the, it. So uh, let, let me start with the genesis of the article. Mm-hmm. This was so early June. So I had been working from home due to COVID, what, three-ish, four-ish months, all day, every day, waking up. My workstation is 10 feet away. Mm-hmm. And this specific day, I don't know what day it was, I was just angry. I didn't want to do any work. I was angry because I couldn't do what I wanted to do and go see my friends or go to happy hour or just to hang out. Mm-hmm. I had reached out to someone to clean up a mess I caused years and years ago, and I didn't like the text message I got in response to that. And I said, I'm just done. I'm just going to ride my mountain bike right now. I'm just getting away from all this. I end up riding my mountain bike, and I of all places, I passed by a cemetery with, that had this huge tower with wind chimes at the back of it. And I did a meditation exercise that I learned from my friend, uh, Rachel Lyons, who's the CEO of Space for Humanity. And she put on a webinar um, and I, I learned this meditation exercise. And when I did the meditation exercise, and part of it is about just looking up into the sky and realizing, wow, like I live on a planet that is one of many planets Um, in a solar system that's one of many solar systems in a galaxy that's in one of many galaxies in a universe that's 
one of the multiverse. And so everything that was going on in my head just kind of just like went away. So I ride home. I text Rachel. I'm like, hey, Rachel, this was great. This was wonderful. I did this, blah, blah, blah. And she responds and she says, well, man, that's a powerful story. And she said, do you know how powerful you are? And I'm like, hmm, 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 hmm. You're right, no. And so I, I looked at the text that said, do you know how powerful you are? And the moment I read it, I just broke down crying. Mm. Like uncontrollable sob- sobbing. Because at that point for me, it was as though that was the first human being that acknowledged my presence and like just the, the essence of me in four-ish months. And so I sat down because like, oh, my goodness, what are you doing, Jason? <laughs> Get it together. <laughs> and so I figured, OK, well, so you I realized that, yeah, COVID is affecting me and this isolation thing is affecting me. Mm-hmm. And I'd been pretending it hadn't and I never told anybody. Mm-hmm. So I thought, OK, well, that just made a difference sharing that and crying about that. Well, what else is it that you are not saying right now? And what immediately came up was, I'm not saying what it's like to be a black man in the United States right now. And so I immediately sent a text to my five good friends from law school, uh, Russell Woodard, Bo Jones, David Fleshman, Brandon McCord, and Taylor Bassett. And we have a thread. We always talk. We joke. And I said, hey, you know, I just want you guys to know what, what I'm, what's showing up for me right now. I'm not expecting an answer. I'm not expecting a response. I love you all to death, and I want you to know what it's like to be black for me right now. Mm -hmm. And so what I sent them was basically the body of my article, I'm tired of fill Mm -hmm. in the blank. So the responses I received from them were amazing. Mm. They were supportive, the phone calls I had. And based on those conversations, I started copying and pasting that text message and sending it to other people. And based on those conversations and those text messages, I started sending it to other people. And so one night I sat back and thought, okay, now, wait a minute. You may be on to something. How can you reach a large medium to to share your story, to make an impact, to make a difference? And so I assembled what I call my team of advisors. So um, friends, family, um, one of my uh, law school professors, people that I, that I really value their opinion. And I had conversations with each one of them about, you know, hey, here, here's what I want to do. Let's think about this. And so after all the, the conversations, you know, I came to the conclusion, okay, let, let's publish this in the Denver Post. And, you know, there were a whole bunch of concerns there <laughs> about, yeah, well, about... Tell us about that. What were those yeah, concerns? You know, well, one was, okay... Obviously, there will be some people that don't like what you're saying. Okay, deal with that. Also, okay, well, I work for the federal government. I did have a concern about, okay, well, what, what about people that I work with? What if they don't like this? What, you know, what about some of my friends or, or some of my family? What, what about certain members in the community? Um, you know, because I'm not just saying, hey, I, you know, to me, I was totally putting my story out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember having a conversation with my mom, my dad, and my brother really about some concerns that I didn't want to talk about. Um, 
Like, just be, you know, be creative. Concerns that I didn't want to talk about. And I was angry. I was frustrated. I went home. And then I remember sitting on one of my bar stools in my kitchen. And in this just moment of clarity, I just realized, like, look, everything, Jason, that you have ever experienced in life has led to this one moment. Like, everything you've experienced. Mm. And I knew I was going to publish it. And I, I knew that there's going to be people that challenge my story. And that's okay. They can challenge my truth. I know my truth. And that may rub some people the wrong way. And if that's what I have to deal with and confront and address in order to make a difference in the world, then I'm taking that on because I'm not willing to sit this out. Because, you know, my normal way of being is going hide in the corner over there, pretend I don't make a difference and an mm-hmm. impact uh, because I don't want to be responsible for that. And like, oh, mm-hmm. I'll just let this pass me by. I'm good. Yeah. I'm just no, no longer willing to do that. And I, I just go back to that one moment of clarity that look, everything, is, everything in my life has led me to this one moment. And I said yes. When was the article published? June 18th of this year, Juneteenth. Okay. So you, there, it's been some time. It has. So have you gotten any backlash? Have you heard from anyone? Yeah. So um, I've re- oh, there was one individual that would send me random messages in the morning on Messenger calling, you know, saying whatever names you want to say. Um, on Facebook Messenger? Yes. Uh, or MSN, one of them. And, you know, certain people challenge, well, I, I don't necessarily believe what, what he's saying. Um, how can this be the case? And, you know, again, that that's fine and that's great. That means you're thinking for yourself. And, you know, I didn't ask you to agree with me. You don't have to agree with me. N- nor am who I, you know, again, who I am isn't given by you agreeing with me. If that was the case, then that's a long, that's a long <laughs> and deep rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. Um, the overwhelming response has been positive. And the conversations I've had, I mean, I, I never imagined that I'd have those types of conversations. And so, uh, again, you know, there are people that um, say certain things about the story, and that's okay. And, tell us about the positivity. Oh, what, oh, oh, Tell sure. us about the positive response you've got. I mean, the conversations that I'm having, you know, certain people have never been exposed to this before. And they didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I... You, the, one of the big takeaways of all these conversations that I'm having is that, hey, look, like racism and discrimination, this isn't some type of theory that's like mm-hmm. in the ether floating around that's not real. It's real. Like it, it's, it's real. Like we're watching it right now. Mm-hmm. And to actually have something tangible to see and feel, you know, it's, uh, it's altered people's perspectives about, okay, wow, so you're an assistant U.S. attorney and you're the only black federal prosecutor in the state of Colorado, okay, and, and you've experienced this. Oh, okay. So it has made it real for them. Mm-hmm. And now that it is real, now they're having a, a new set of conversations. Can you remember any particularly impactful discussions you've had as a response to your article? Just having people say, look, I, I never thought... I." I I just didn't know that this was happening. 
I, I didn't know that that was your experience. And to hear you say what you went through, that has literally changed my perspective on this. And like, hey, what can I do? Mm. And I mean, clearly they're all in when they're like, what can I do? Now, I don't have a necess- I don't necessarily have a, a global answer for that. You don't have marching orders <laughs> to give? <laughs> right? No, no, that's something that we all need to dance with because mm-hmm. what there is to do for you is going to be different for mm-hmm. me. It's going to look like, it's going to look different, sound different and feel different. And we just need to be able to dance in that and say, hey, look, like for me, it's not, you don't have to take some extraordinary action. Now, if there is extraordinary action to take, do it. It, to me, it's the accumulation and it's the accretion of these Mm -hmm. small acts of courage and kindness Mm -hmm. that has brought us to the tipping point because we are at the tipping point. I think lately a lot of people have been very impacted by racial inequality and actually seeing kind of what you're saying. This isn't a hypothetical. Mm -hmm. This isn't something that just happened years ago. We're seeing it Mm -hmm. constantly. And a lot of white people have, I think, in a well-intentioned way, gone to people of color and said, what should I be doing? And on the one hand, it's not your job to (laughs) teach (laughs) non-minorities how to be positive in the world right now. That's not your job. So when white friends were coming to you saying, this is incredible. I didn't know this was your experience. I'm so moved. What should I do? What's your reaction to that? So my initial reaction is, you know, this is the type of conversation that we need to be having that that we are at this critical moment in human history, and that's a conversation we need to have. Also, I don't have an answer. I don't have this perfect answer. Uh, I, I don't. And if I try to create, I mean, now we can create one, but I don't have this patented answer. And I tell, I tell people, that, look, I, I don't know. The, the only thing that I, what I do know is that this all starts with a conversation. Mm-hmm. Like the conversation we're having right now that you just walked up to me and said, hey, what can I do? And my immediate response is, well, look, uh, I'll be generous. I'll give you three days. And that's being very generous. Within three days, you will have heard something, seen something. The purpose of which is to subjugate, humiliate Mm. uh, black and brown people. Mm. And now you have the opportunity to to do something. When you see something, you say something. When you hear something, you say something. And when you, another white person, calls out another white person and says, okay, look, you just said this, and I'm not quite sure why you think it was funny. And if that's how you choose to be, then you're no longer welcome in this conversation or you're no longer welcome wherever we're at. Mm -hmm. Like when, when they take a stand like that, you know, that that is huge and again it doesn't this doesn't have to be some like extraordinary action of you're saving a life it's like look you called someone out the moment you heard and said something and heard or or saw something and that's where we can start because look it's it's no one's coming to save us (laughs) if if we're waiting for some superhero to swoop in out of the sky or some magical planet and sprinkle pixie dust here and make this better it's not going to happen like, it's going to take all kinds. It's going to take these small acts of courage. And, like, 
that's how we create a new conversation about race because race is that's all it is. it's a conversation and current the current conversation isn't working mm. i mean it that's very clear and it hasn't worked and so to answer your question you know i tell them, look i don't have an answer but what i can t- this is what i do know it starts with a conversation and you whoever you are you're going to have an opportunity to have a conversation in three days and that's pushing it i'm being graceful and that graceful is kind of the perfect the perfect word for that. I was going to comment that I think that that's a very <laughs> gracious response, and I'm sure it's one your friends genuinely appreciate. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a very gracious response. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about your relationship with a coach on the Denver Broncos. I know that you have sure. a meaningful relationship with one of them. Will you tell us about that next? Absolutely. So, uh, Coach Anthony Lamando, he's the assistant strength coach of the Broncos. I met him years ago, and He's one of my my dear, dear friends here. Um, He called me uh, maybe a month ago. And, you know, when he calls me during the day, I know something's up (laughs) because he's usually taking care of the players. And so I answered his phone call and he said, hey, you know, he he, do you have five minutes? I said, sure. So he's talking to me about what the NFL uh, calls their on-field recognition program. So if you've watched any NFL games this year, the NFL has allowed players to wear to have the names of certain victims of systemic racism on the back of their helmets. So you may see uh, someone with a George with George Floyd on the back of their helmet. I saw Breonna Taylor the other day. Exactly, and the coaches are allowed to do that too. Now, obviously, they don't have helmets, so you can they can wear someone's name on their hat. And so Anthony tells me about this, and then he says, you know. I want to honor you. I was like, excuse me, what? <laughs> <laughs> Again, like, old Jason yeah, thinking, yeah. what would I be honored yeah, for? Like, what? <laughs> and so he says, I want to wear your name on my hat. Mm. And I, I don't know what I said because I was completely dumbfounded. And he said, look, man, I can't, you were the first name that came to mind. And I can't think of anybody else I want to honor. I, I, I know your story. I know what it took to publish the Denver Post article and like totally put your story out there. I know the concerns that you voiced to me because I, I specific he he is on my team and we had a conversation about the article before I published and we had mm-hmm. a, a long conversation about things, and I said, look, man, I'm I'm honored. This is this is like the honor of a lifetime, and so my answer is yes, and so I had to talk to people in NFL offices in New York to make sure that hey, this was that I agreed to this, I consented to this because I believe I'm sort of an anomaly because I'm actually living Mm -hmm. and he's honoring me. And I remember, so it's on his hat for the whole season. And the first game, Monday night football, I was actually on a date with my girlfriend at a park and I was showing her the, uh, the picture that Anthony sent me of the hat. And it was probably when they were doing the time when they were doing warmups and, I'm looking at the picture as I'm showing it to my girlfriend and um, I'm realizing, oh, they're, they're probably on the field right now. And it was this surreal moment of, of all the people that Anthony could have chosen in the course of human history. He chose me. And my name is on his hat right now on an NFL field. And it w- again, you know, coming from this place that I can't make a difference and I'm not good enough, like to know my name is on his hat and he chose me. That, I mean, it's it's the honor of a lifetime. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that. I mean, 
I tell him that routinely. I thank him <laughs> routinely. And just to know that, you know, my story, my ability to be vulnerable, my ability to be authentic and share my story so we can move the ball here in this thing that we call race. I mean, what a, what a gift. And um, it's, like he, it's like he held up a mirror to me. And um, I'll just never forget that. I don't want to close with a question. Um, in the spirit of this conversation, it feels presumptuous of me <laughs> to ask a question when you have so much insight um, mm -hmm. that you're graciously sharing with us. So I would rather close with giving you the ability to end with a statement. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything on your heart that you want to share with us? Sure. So, you know, what I would say to the listeners is that, look, if you ever had this, this idea that you don't have the capacity to impact the world. If you don't have the capacity, you're not smart enough, you're not intelligent enough, you're not connected enough, or you don't speak the lingo. You know, look, I get that. And that was my life. And I tell you, listening, that you, like, you are powerful beyond measure. And it's going to take you, like the big you, not the one that's hiding in the corner right now, to really move the ball here in this thing that we call race and to transform the conversation about race. And we walk around in life that this thing called life is, is infinite. You know, as far as I know, in the body that I'm currently constituted in at this point in human history, you know, my life is finite. And I don't know how long I've got. And I'm not willing to sit this out. I'm, I'm just not. And I don't know what that looks like any given day. It may look different. It's going to look different for you than it is for me. And it takes you listening. So whoever you are, wherever you are, it takes you, like the giant human being that you are. And it's those small acts of courage. It's those small acts of kindness. It's the stance that you take to honor the dignity of what it is to be a human being. That's what it takes. And no one's coming to save us. It's going to take you. If we wait, then we're going to continue to get what we've gotten. And that is my request to listeners. That is my request to, to take action and to just be you. Thank you so much for being here and sharing so much. It means the world to both of us. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McCarthy. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producer and editor is Courtney Holm, with theme and introduction by Mario Trimble. 
This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices. Thank you.